is good to be together. It has been, oh, I had two weeks of being invested in and taught by Pastor Mike as we've started this series in Jonah, the missionary that can't even. I'm excited to be in this because as Mike was teaching, I was thinking through this passage that I was going to get to teach, and I realized that this is a passage that most of us know. We've heard it. We heard it maybe when we were younger. We've, we've heard about this story, maybe not this entire passage, but the first verse that we're going to study today. We're going to talk about Jonah, this obstinate guy who was unwilling to really do what God wanted him to do. But the thing that most of us know about in the narrative of Jonah is him being swallowed by a what? Fish. Hear me. It was not a whale. All right, there's certain things that I always push back on, like you didn't accept Jesus, he accepted you. It's not revelations, it's revelation. It's not a wanna's, it's a wanna. And it was not a whale, it was a fish. All right, I'm just, we're gonna over explain this because I think for a lot of us, we think of it as a whale because we saw some felt board when we were a child and there was a whale, it looked like Shamu, and we're like, yes, he was swallowed. It was not a whale, it was a fish, and we don't know what kind of fish it was. So I want to cover quickly as we overemphasize the fact that it was a fish, why I personally believe that this story that we're studying today in particular, this book of Jonah, and in particular him being swallowed by this fish and living in the fish for three days and three nights, is historical and not fictional. Jonah, son of Amittai, was addressed in the first sermon we did in the series, where in 2 Kings, he was talked about as a person who existed in the middle of the 700 B.C. time era. I have faith that they wouldn't use a real person, but put him in a fake narrative like fan fiction. But also in the New Testament, we see Jesus speaking about him, and the book of the Bible, Jonah, not as allegory, but as history. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus says this. He answered, a wicked, wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And you may say, right now, as you hear me teaching on this, how could anyone survive in the belly of some fish that we can't even identify what kind of fish it was? Here's the proper answer. He probably can't any more than a man can stay three days in a grave and rise from the dead. This is why in verse 39, Jesus says that it is a sign, which at the time, people didn't know that it would eventually point to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I read ahead, and so did you. So if you attempt to try to naturally describe how this idea of this man going into this fish and being in there for three days and three nights would be possible, let me save you a headache. You cannot explain it naturally. It must be a supernatural intervention of God. So here we go. Verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge, what's that word? All right, just making sure. To swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. This is one of the most contested miracles in all of scripture. Scripture. So let's start where this verse starts. Now the Lord provided. Oh, that's a great, great term. We see in the book of Jonah this phrase, not just here, but later on in where we see a tree and a worm. And I want to remind us today, no matter what you come in with this morning, 
is that we do not worship a God that is an absentee father. He doesn't set everything up and then run some type of simulation without any care for the people within the world that he created. So the Lord provides this fish. It's not a whale. God provides this fish to rescue Jonah from drowning. And here's what this fish did. It created a safe haven for Jonah to do three things, to pray, to praise, and to repent. The provision of the fish is something I think we miss. It was this miraculous work of the Lord to provide this fish that Jonah had the opportunity to realize his need and his desperation for God. So let me say something about even what he was going through. See, every difficulty is not caused by our sin, okay? You forgot to do your quiet time and God's like, oh, I got a lightning bolt. That's not my God. But every difficulty may not be caused by our sin, but every difficulty can be used to reduce the power that sin has over us. So watch how this plays out in Jonah's account of his time inside this fish. Verse 1. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. He was in the water. And as we will read, or as we have read, he was desperate. The fish is what gave him the opportunity to cry out to God. Not the distress of being in the fish, which I think a lot of us read this as. Oh my gosh, I'm in a fish. But being in the water without an opportunity for refuge, because he couldn't tread water forever. And it is this constant theme of the Bible to point us to our need for a God. To point us to our need for a God-shaped hold that's in our hearts and lives that we attempt to numb that need or fill the hole with things that are not God, but we think will satisfy. We have addictions in this world, from alcoholism to drugs to sex to need for attention and acceptance to physically harming ourselves, and addiction is rampant in society, and it's even prevalent in the church, including this one. So here's a weird statement, because I know for most of us, when we are in the thick of addiction or we're being affected by someone who's in an addiction, we want it to just go away. But here's what I can tell you. When someone is trying to fill their God-shaped hole in their hearts with some created thing, it's an opportunity for us to minister. And it's an opportunity to look to the only one who can and will satisfy. It's not just that Jonah realized he had hit rock bottom emotionally, spiritually, and physically, but it's one's reaction to this epiphany to pray and to repent. See, repentance begins with faith, and it continues in prayer. So prior to this, Jonah would not pray. <laughs> Have you ever been asked to pray for someone and you just want to ask the person back, well, are you praying or do you want me to pray for you? And up until this point, he would not pray himself, but he wanted to be a sacrifice to calm the storm. He was willing to do that, but it wasn't until the fish swallowed him that he was willing to talk to God himself. Jonah, a man that the word of the Lord had come to, one who had a much more tangible dialogue with God than most of us. He was spoken to by God, and what does he do? He runs the opposite direction. Did you guys notice that? I gotta be honest. So many of us think, oh, if I could just hear from God. 
If I could just have God speak to me and tell me what he wants me to do. Well, what happens if he tells you to do something that's out of your comfort zone? And spoiler, everything he's going to call you to do is going to be outside of your comfort zone. Because there's nothing he calls you to do that he isn't required to be a part of. So what happens if he tells us to do something? What do we do? We probably do exactly what Jonah did, which is run the opposite direction. Let's be real. We all would, did, and will continue to do the opposite thing that God asks us to do, but we have a gracious and merciful God who is patient with us, who intervenes. No verse has encouraged me more than 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 in the past few weeks. Peter says it this way, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So maybe you're struggling with the fact that someone in your life is yet to turn to Christ. I would assume that's most of us, that we have people in our lives that haven't turned to Christ. Or maybe we knew someone who turned to Christ, but in air quotes, it didn't take. Please remember that it is God's patience that means salvation for those around us. We often call to God for help, but what we misunderstand is the need for God, not just in our trials, not just in the storms of this life, but our need for God in every moment of our lives. It is often said that you don't realize Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. And those who have struggled with addiction know what I mean. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, Jesus says it this way, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying that you must die to yourself, to who you were in order to follow him. You must die to that. And for too many of us, we come to Christ and then we tell Christ to follow us. But he makes a promise. To those who are willing to pick up their cross, to follow him, to release their grip on how they believe their life should be and allow God to give them a new life, they receive eternal life in him alone. That is a promise. Jonah says his cry was heard in the realm of the dead. The Hebrew word that's used for this is one that some of us know. It's Sheol, which was known as the place where the wicked would go apart from God's presence. Verse 3. Jonah says, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Huh. He makes this really interesting statement if you've been reading along. He says, you hurled me into the seas. This is interesting because he was told to go to Nineveh, which was inland. But he chose to run the other direction and go as far as he could away from what God had told him to do. And then it was the sailors that he told to throw him overboard. But Jonah, in this lamenting prayer, says, you threw me into the depths of the sea. We can misunderstand and blame God for things we've decided to do in rebellion to God, but Jonah also may be pointing to the same truth that David alludes to in Psalm 51. Check out this psalm. He says it this way, For I know my transgressions, Verse 3, and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother 
conceived me. So David says, only against you, Lord, have I sinned. Which is really interesting because David did some messed up stuff to a lot of people, and yet he points who the sins are really against, which is the perfect one. I need to remember this when I get angry with someone. Or when I treat someone with contempt because in my sin, I am ultimately sinning against God if that person in my mind deserves my wrath or not. Verse 4 of Jonah. I said, Jonah, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I think that most of us could empathize with Jonah in this moment. We know we've failed. We know we've disobeyed. We think that our sin is more powerful than the cross. We think that our sin is more powerful than the cause and the grace of Christ. But even though so far we don't see Jonah doing anything well, anything right, anything redeeming, other than maybe being willing to sacrifice himself so God would stop the storm and the waves, but I would contend that he wanted to do that because he wanted to die rather than do what God told him to do. We see a heart in this moment that seems to be turning. A heart that seems to be repentant because he's in need. But which comes first, repentance or needs? Usually it's needs. Why? Because it is in the needs of the people, the needs of the people that we are the people, that we realize our necessity and our utter spiritual bankruptcy without Christ. So Jonah knew he had done no good and is running from God's call. And so he saw the ocean as his banish, banishment from God's sight. But he says, and I love that he says this, I will look again towards God's holy temple. Jonah, even though he felt pushed away or banished, even though he did this to himself, let's be real, he saw this as an opportunity to look at, to fixate on, and to Fix his gaze upon God's presence. Don't forget where this is prayed. In the middle of a very large fish's stomach. And this is not for anyone else's benefit other than for this desperate man who is calling on to a perfect God. Often much of our spirituality is lived out in front of others, almost where it seems like we're living spiritually for other people's benefit rather than because we want to have an intimacy with our creator. So if you only do spiritual things when someone else is looking, in the fond, great words of Bob Newhart, stop it. And realize you are not fooling God. And all the theatrical devotion you can muster will never do even an ounce of good eternally. But I know that, at least for me, sometimes, pretty much all the time, I require desperate circumstances to really be real with God. Verse 5. Jonah says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Gross. Jonah paints the picture of what he was experiencing. For many, they see this fish as judgment. Or that he was there to eat Jonah as his sustenance. But the passage says in verse 17 of chapter 1 that the Lord provided the fish. So you want to know what the fish was? Here it is. A predetermined provision to praise, pray, and repent to God. That's what the fish was. 
It was a predetermined provision to praise, pray, and repent to God. So have you ever been in a circumstance where you thought you were in danger or you thought, oh, woe is me, when in reality, it was a beautiful grace from the Lord to be able to focus on him? I spent a bunch of time in a town I don't like to mention. Uh, it was over by Modesto, right below hell. It's called Patterson. And in that time, I thought I was going to prosper. Bought a nice house, thought it was going to be on cribs, thought Exhibit was going to come to my house and show off the house. Anyone? No? First service got that. Okay, just putting that out there. But you know what? I, I didn't prosper. In fact, spiritually, where we moved, I digressed. I went the other direction. But even though I see that, even to today, as a desert time for me with the Lord, it did something in me. To be isolated, to be without community, made me realize that I had a deeper dependence upon God and his church community. Verse 6. To the roots of the mountains, Jonah says, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. Jonah keeps using this language of deep and, and the depths as if he was sinking and getting farther and farther away from God. And even though God usually is referred to as above and in the heavens, there is nowhere on this earth, church, that you can go to be away from him. But Jonah is now using language of being brought up. You, Lord, my God, possessive pronoun, brought my life up from the pit. This is a common theme of those who have been intercepted by the gospel message. Now, I say intercepted because as we speak of a lot, none of us naturally go towards God on our own. It requires God's intervention and his intercepting of us from where we were headed for any of us to be justified, for any of us to be redeemed, to inherit eternal life, because salvation belongs to the Lord. So if any of us act like we are awesome for being saved, that's ridiculous. Like a 16-year-old driving a Tesla, you did not earn it. Verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. When he was in and out of consciousness, because remember, this was three days, his mind went to the Lord. He remembered him. This is one of the beautiful graces of our God. Hear me, grace is not fair. Anyone tighten up when I said that? Grace is not fair. See, grace is getting what you don't deserve. You deserve death, God gives you life. That's not fair. And there are some who follow the Lord possibly their entire lives. They do all the things in their minds that they think they're supposed to do. But eventually it becomes this expectation because they've been moral that God owes them something. Listen, God owes all of us nothing. What we earn, according to the Bible, is death. And he gives us his son whom eternal life is available through. And we're going to see this more in the next few sermons, but we're going to see that Jonah vacillates between the younger and the older brother in the book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols, they turn away from God's love for them. That's pretty deep. 
And Jonah implies not just that those who have worship are worthless idols. Let me show you one. Here's one. Not just those who have lower G gods, but those who serve other gods. They worship those gods and live their lives for the benefit of these make-believe gods rather than the true God. And see, the Apostle Paul, he points to this. He points to the human tendency as he was speaking in Athens before a city council meeting, essentially. Here's what he says in Acts 17, verse 29 through 31. Therefore, he was just quoting their poets, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being, the deity, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to, what's that word? Repent. To change direction. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Hallelujah. To make creation more important than the creator seems incredibly ignorant. But can we be real? We all do this. We all start to look at things to satisfy rather than the one who created us to know and love him. But as Paul says so clearly in Athens, in the past, God overlooked such such ignorance. But now, and this includes us, he commands everyone to repent, to change direction, to trust in the one true God. And he has made clear that you could identify who that one true God is by raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 9, but I, Jonah says, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah, he had been obstinate and really a terrible example of someone who we think God should have called to work for him. He's now changing direction. His attitude is changing. He is yielding to God's authority, and he is telling God that he is his. But I will, he says, signifying that he is turning a corner or a change in him has taken place. With shouts of grateful praise, I will offer sacrifices to you. And Jonah is saying, I see what you are doing, Lord. I see who you are. So my response will be to praise you out of gratitude for your saving nature. I will live my life, not for me, for you, offering sacrifices to you because that's what your people do. And that's still true. Wow, that was a lot of rhyming. And in Psalm chapter 50, God is speaking through the psalmist and he says it this way in verse 9. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of... or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the most high and call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you, and you will honor me. This is what Jonah is experiencing. He says that he will fulfill his vows, and God will deliver him, and Jonah will honor God. But the timetable seems a little off, because up until this point, Jonah hasn't vowed anything. 
He definitely wasn't honoring God by running away from him and doing the opposite of what God told him. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a quote that some of us are going to want to say amen. Don't. We've said that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, and you want to say it. But I don't love that statement because it feels a little too prosperity gospel for me. Here's what I see. God knows who you are, and he knows how to make you who you'll be. That's what I see. God knows who you are, and he knows how to make you who you'll be. But guess what? That requires refining, church. And guess how God refines us? Through tough circumstances. God doesn't sanctify with pillows. We say that a lot. Greg Laurie, an evangelist and a pastor in Southern California, he once said it this way, Christians are like tea bags. You don't really know what they're like until you put them in hot water. You don't really know what they're made of until you put them in hot water. So even when someone is unlikely and even obstinate enemy against God, he can still bring that person to repentance through his kindness and our need. In the past, people would sacrifice animals. They'd sacrifice wheat. They'd sacrifice grain or things that were important to them to show that what rank God had in their lives. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the gospel was foreshadowed and it was veiled. In the New Testament, the gospel is completed and it's transparent because the gospel is about Jesus. With Jesus, the gospel is made clear. So we live our lives with Jesus at the center, meaning that everything we do is Christ-centered, that everything we ought to do should be spirit-led through trusting God at his very word. So here's what it says at the end of Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah says, I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. Some commentators have said that this is the most comprehensive verse in all of Scripture to explain all of Scripture. In fact, Tim Keller said it, so you know it's true. Here's what it means. Salvation is God's. It is not something to be earned or attained. It is something that can only be received as a gift. And the story of the Bible is that God gives this gift, not to those who attempt to earn it through their own merit, but to those he decides to provide it for. So I know where our minds go, all right? I, I've been there, I've had the conversations, I've had the argument, blah, 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 whatever. I hear the arguments. I hear the way that we're attempting to discount God's free gift of salvation, and I will not put up with it. We think, well, what about so-and-so? He doesn't know God. Why doesn't God love him? I, don't, I just feel like you're supposed to have a whiny voice when you say it that way. He hasn't been gifted salvation. He isn't saved. He doesn't believe. Listen, God's gift of salvation is not predicated on his love. He does love the world. God's gift of salvation is predicated on his intervention. What's the most popular verse in the Bible? We know it, but do you know 17 and 18? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen, pastor. That's a good verse. I tattooed that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Amen. That's good stuff. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Hallelujah. But whoever does not believe stands condemned. Uh-oh. Already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 
So here's the question. So why doesn't God just save everyone? Ever asked this? Ever thought about this? Why doesn't God just save everyone? Listen, that's the wrong question. The right question has and will always be, why does God save any of us? Why would God sacrifice his one and only son so that those who blaspheme his name, those who do the opposite of what he says, those who want to live their lives their own way would have salvation offered to them? Here is the thing. I'm not talking about Jonah or the Ninevites or the worst type of people I can think of. I'm talking about us. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you didn't qualify yourself. You didn't get his attention. You didn't do anything to be noticed. You weren't more attractive or more important than some other person. God, in his infinite grace, intervened in your life. You were headed towards destruction, and God intervened. He intercepted your natural progression from its destination of destruction. That's the God we worship. All right. Real talk. I like to be honest when I preach. Uh, I have a confession to make. A lot of you don't know this about me. I am a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Now, relax. It began when I was young, growing up in L.A., where football teams like the Raiders couldn't make up their minds to where they were going to play. So glad that hasn't, or that's changed. And being a Steelers fan is wonderful when they are winning, but terrible when they are not. Really like any sports team. And my favorite player ever is probably Troy Polamalu. I love this guy. We have a slide. Troy Polamalu was a safety. He was legit. He played for the Steelers. He was an unbelievable defenseman. And back in 2008, you guys were alive, right? Okay, good. Back in 2008, I believe he made the second best ever interception in history. See, the, the play occurred, this is about football, in case any of you were lost. Okay, all right. The play occurred in week 11 in a game against the San Diego Chargers, who are now the Los Angeles Chargers. And it was in 2008, and in the opening quarter, Philip Rivers, who was totally overrated, unleashed a laser of a pass that was tipped by a guy named Ike Taylor, who was on the secondary of the Steelers. Paul Amalu had to backtrack. He had to fully extend and secure the loose ball for a spectacular interception. Okay, why am I mostly passionate about this? I'm sorry. The degree of difficulty was amplified by the miserable playing conditions because snow was on the field of Heinz Field. The turf was slick, the ball was slick. The Steelers ended up winning this game behind this interception that Troy made. It was a defensive battle, it was 11 to 10, and it pushed the Steelers' overall record to 7 to 3. And Pittsburgh faced what many would argue was the league's toughest schedule that year, but they went on to win their sixth Super Bowl title over the Arizona Cardinals. Hallelujah. But this, hear me, was the second best interception of all time. It was an awesome play that spurred on a wonderful season for the Steelers, but the greatest interception of all time was when God decided to intervene in your life and change the direction of where you were going.
Not because you changed your mind, but because God intercepted your eternity. We didn't come halfway, made ourselves shiny, and then God came the other half. It was all God. God is mighty to save. Him alone. Salvation, what Jonah says, is possessed by the Lord. Salvation is God's. Tim Keller says, you cannot and do not save yourself. That is the gospel. Well, obviously, that's not the entire gospel. But it's a great place to start. Too many of us think we can do something to be saved. So we'll attempt to be more religious, we'll attempt to be more pious, more moral, more legalistic, rather than starting where every sinner saved by grace starts, in a confession and understanding that we cannot be saved without God intervening. I know some of you are like, no, 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 I did it. Well, no, you didn't. And I will fight you on that. Not like physically, but verbally. Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited, spewed Jonah onto dry land. Gross. But talk about grace. Talk about a miracle. Jonah just spent three days in a fish within its stomach and lived to tell about it. But let me end today where I started. In Jesus' words, commenting on this very story. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 40, I'm going to read it again. He answered, Jesus, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Did you know that this circumstance of Jonah points us to a better Jonah? The Jonah who didn't run from where God told him to go? who didn't hiccup at all when told that he would go to a world that would reject him and put him to death? A better Jonah who would sacrifice himself, not just for a boat of sailors, but for a world that was in need of intervention. The best Jonah who didn't need to repent himself because he was without sin, but went to death so that our repentance would matter. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be gifted the right standing before God, which only Jesus deserves. If that doesn't cause you to want to worship the one true God, I don't know what could. But my prayer as I was writing this message was that you would understand, that you would repent, and you would, re and you would praise him because salvation alone belongs to him. And he has offered it to you through the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of God's only Son, Jesus.